worse. Yeah. Up, up, up. Here we go. Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the podcast. Back on the treadmill. Now, about an hour ago, I jumped on my treadmill, loaded up the Reddit, and realized that I hadn't uploaded the podcast that I recorded yesterday. Um, if you've listened to it by now, you would know that I got a new motivation to exercise while I podcast, and I was quite excited to do that. I was huffing and puffing a lot, and I'm sure that's awful to listen to, and I'm sure my listenership will drop, but I don't uh, particularly, I mean, I do mind, but I more value my health, and my health has been concerning me recently. My weight keeps going up. My breath keeps getting shorter. My heart rate keeps getting worse. Uh, you know, all these things. Um, so, this is the plan. Anyway, in my excitement, I recorded the podcast early and I thought, well, I'll come back later and upload that. <clears throat> and guess what? I forgot to upload it. And I didn't even realize until about an hour ago when I went to do the today's podcast. So, um, I commented yesterday, I got all motivated to exercise which probably sounds horrible, but my heart and lungs will thank me. In my enthusiasm, I recorded the podcast early and did the whole chapter. Then I forgot to come back and upload it. Sorry, it is late again. But Swims at the Mama Fishy was ready, came in with a comment. So I don't understand George's comment about a parody. The lines are quoted by A.E. from his heart poem, The Willows. Bret Hart was a 19th century author and poet famous for his stories about California mining towns and about the pioneering life in the California of his day. Twisting of the Rope was based on a short story by Yeats. Thank you, Swim, for that. Um, and I think we're just going to keep going straight into the next chapter. Chapter 7. But who is Frank Fay, the reader asks. In the days of Diamond and Grenier, he was offering his living as a shorthand writer and typist in an accountant's office. And when his day's work was over, he went to the National Library to read books on stage history. His brother, Willie, was a clerk in some gasworks and painted scenery when his work was over. And both brothers, whenever the opportunity offered, were ready to arrange for the performances of sketches, farces, one-act plays in temperance halls. But Box and Cox did not satisfy their ambitions, and the enthusiasm which the twisting of the rope had evoked brought Willie Fay to my house one evening to ask me if I would use my influence with the Gaelic League to send himself and his brother out with a little stock company to play an equal number of plays in English and Irish. But do you know Irish sufficiently? He admitted that neither of them had any Irish at all. And my brow clouded. We must have a few plays in English. We wouldn't always be sure of an Irish-speaking audience. If English plays are allowed, precedence will be given to them. The line of least resistance, I said, but the idea of stock company travelling all over the country seemed an excellent one. And I promised that on the morrow, as soon as I had finished my writing, I would go down to the Gaelic League offices and lay the project before the secretary. My writers are always glad 
of any little excuse for an afternoon walk. Our brains are exhausted after five or six hours of composition. And the question arises, how are the hours before dinner to be whiled away and the hours after dinner? For if we go to bed before 12, we may lie awake thinking of what we have written during the day and of what we hope to write on the morrow. The reader sees us as spending our evenings reading, but we have read all the books that we want to read. The modern theatre is merely servant girlism. I make no difference between the kitchen and the drawing room variety. After 40, shooting and hunting amuse us no longer, and women, though still enchanting, are not quite so enchanting as they used to be. There's one. She turned round the corner into Baggett Street, and I stood hesitating between a choice of ways. The green tempted me, and I thought of Grafton Street and the women running in and out of the shops and after each other, taking and gathering up the finery which brings the young barristers, barristers from the courts, spruce young fellows whom I often see in little groups of threes and fours, each one trying to look as if he were busy disentangling some knotty point of law, but thinking all the while of his coloured socks and of the women going by in Grafton Street, I should meet little Tommy O'Shaughnessy on his way home from Green Street. courthouse, which he never really leaves, talking to himself and tapping his snuff-box from time to time, and Gill would be floating along there, lost in admiration for his own wisdom. Sir Thornley Stoker rarely misses Grafton Street between four and five. I should certainly catch sight of him hopping about a silversmith's like an old magpie, prying out spoons and forks and the immodest bulk of Larky Waldron, walking, waiting, Outside for him, looking into the window, a hundred other odds and oddments I should meet there, everyone amusing to see and to hear. All the same, for a change of spectacle, it might be as well to stroll to the Gaelic League offices. Through Merrion Street and along Nassau Street, I should meet students on their way to the National Library, girls and boys, and an old derelict Jesuit, whom I like to see going by in his threadbare coat, tightly buttoned. A great Irish scholar, and then there are the clerics to see out for their afternoon walks, which perhaps a glimpse of Edward talking to them. He always says that he likes bohemians or priests. The rural clergy tell him about the country, and he tells the urban priests that he has very nearly succeeded in inveigling. Archbishop Walsh into accepting £10,000 for the establishment of a choir to sing, Palestrina and Orlando de Lasso. The priests go away, smiling inwardly, thinking him a little eccentric, but a very good Catholic. If Edward is out of town, and my taste runs that day towards Greens and Greenwoods, all I have to do is to go down Leinster Street and through a gateway into Trinity College Gardens, Professor Mahaffey sometimes walks in the path under the railings shaded by beautiful trees and if I, it had not been for a ferocious article published at the time attacking him for his lack of sympathy for the Gaelic movement we might have spent many pleasant hours together under the Hawthorns. Professor Tyrrell's hostility to our movement was less aggressive and I liked to meet him in the gardens and to walk a little 
way with him, listening to his pleasant ancient warble about the literature and that he has lived in all his life, and with which he is so saturated that involuntarily he transports me out of the grey modern day to Athens, where Astaphanes walked to the Piraeus to watch for the galleys from Sicily. If these two men are not about, there are other professors, and I have often been through the gardens talking with the fellow that teaches French. He is, of course, learned in Corneille, Racine, and Ronsard, and by some strange chance he knows Stuart Merrill, a poet of some distinction, a contributor to the old Revue Independente, Da Jardin's Revue, but unfortunately he never met De Jardin, and as it is impossible to talk to Stuart Merrill for more than half an hour, uh, for more than half an hour, whoops, I lost my place, he was generally sent away at Carlisle Bridge on the other side, one was sure to run up against Tade O'Donoghue, the modern Irish poet, the revival of the Munster poets of the 18th century and my Irish translator, though... O'Neill Russell had begged me to beware of him, saying that the Irish that Tate wrote would not be understood out of Munster. A libel on the Irish language proved to be one soon after the arrival of a boy from Galway, my nephew's Irish tutor, from Coma, who had never been out of Galway before, understood every word of Tate's beautiful translation of my story, The Wedding Gown. The great old cock was O'Neill Russell. What? <laughs> the great old cock was O'Neill Russell, whom we never looked up on as an old man, despite his 80 years. How could we, since he was straight as a maypole and went for walks of two and twenty miles among the Dublin mountains? He came back to me one day after one of these strolls, the news bubbling upon his lips that he had composed an entire scenario on the subject of a heroic adventure, that had happened to an Irish king in the 13th century, but he would not say to stay to dinner, nor even to relate it. He was in too great a hurry to verify the fact that to the National Library to get his scenario down on paper. For one reason or another, he never dined at my house, though he liked to come in after dinner for a talk on Saturday nights. It was no use offering him a cigar. He always begged to be allowed to smoke his pipe. And there being no spittoons in my dining room, the coal scuttle was put by him. A great old cock, head up reared, fine neck, grand shoulders, a stately piece of architecture, fine in detail as in general effect. The big nose divided the face, wandering grey eyes lit it. The large hands had worked for sixty years in America, in France, in the East. He had been all over the world and had returned to Ireland, with some seventy, eighty, perhaps a hundred pounds a year. He was gibbed in songs, for he had gone away as a boy speaking bad Irish, and came back after sixty years speaking bad Irish still. So said the song's refrain. And a story followed at his heels, that he had vilified a man for twenty years in the American newspapers, denouncing him as a renegade Irishman, because had advanced because had advocated a certain use of the genitive, a great old cock, as young as the youngest of the men that came to my house, were it not for a certain sadness, 
A very beautiful sadness, not for himself, but for his country. He had hoped all his life for Ireland's resurrection, but at the end of his life it seemed as far distant as ever. He haunted the Gaelic lead League offices, and the day he pushed the door open, entering the room with a great stride, I began to wonder who the intruder could be. This great tall man, dressed in a faded blue jacket, and a pair of grey trousers and a calico shirt. The editor of the Claydheim introduced us, and my heart went out to him at once, as every heart did, for he was the recognisable Irishman, the adventurer, the wild goose. And after that meeting, we frequently, frequently between five and six o'clock, the Gaelic League officers were then a pleasant resort, all kinds of conditions of men assembled there, and we discussed the Irish League sitting upon tables and smoking cigars. Cigarettes, sorry. It appeared every week in the Claydheim Sulis, and I liked to dictate a paragraph for somebody to turn into Irish before my eyes, and when the editor paused for an equivalent, Everyone ransacked his memory, but our dictionary was always O'Neill Russell, a rambling, incoherent, untrustworthy old dictionary, but one that none of us would have willingly been without. It's pleasant to remember that he was in the offices of the League the day that I called to unfold my project for a little travelling company to the secretary. and that he approved of it, but his conversation soon diverged from the matter in hand into an argument regarding the relative merits of Munster and Connaught Irish. I'm afraid, he said, that you've come too late to revive the Irish language. There are only three men in Ireland who can write pure Irish. It's dialect, sir, they write. This may be true, my dear Mr. O'Neill Russell, but bad Irish is better than good English, and I care little what Irish we get so long as we get ourselves out of English. A few days after I returned triumphant to the secretary, Kuno Meyer, having told me that the night before that Goethe, when he was asked how the German language might be fostered in Poland, had answered, not so much by schools or by books, but by travelling companies that will play, not necessarily good plays, good plays are not even desirable, but homely little plays that will interest the villagers. Everybody likes the theatre, and people will take the trouble to learn a language so that they may understand plays. I'm giving you Goethe's own words, and you'll be well advised to accept the wisdom of the wisest man since antiquity. The secretary did not answer, and I continue angrily. Up to the present you have done nothing but tell the people that they should learn Irish, and the people are not asking themselves what good the language will do them when they have got it. The question is not unreasonable, and it cannot be left unanswered. Willie Fay is willing to undertake the management of a company acting little plays in Irish. You don't answer, and if I read your face correctly, you are not of Goethe's opinion. That is not what I was going to say, sir. I was thinking of our finances. Our organisers cost the League a great deal of money, but your organisers will not be able to do half as much for the language as a company of strolling players. How much do you pay your organisers? About 200 a year. 200 a year to brawl from marketplace to marketplace. Now, my fine fellows, will you be telling me why don't you speak the language of your forefathers? If it was good enough for them, it ought to be good enough for you. And you, Joe Maguire, why aren't you talking Irish?
The Secretary was not disposed to admit that the organisers of the League were as uncouth as I wished them to represent them. It matters little whether they are couth or uncouth, my good sir. You must provide a reason for the learning of Irish, and there are only two valid reasons, the book to read books and to understand plays. Bedell's Bible was mentioned, a masterpiece of modern Irish. The secretary admitted it to be. But what would Father Riley be saying if we were caught putting forward a Protestant book? We can't afford to have the priests against us. I know that, but the priests couldn't object to the travelling company. The secretary admitted that he did not see how he could, and he promised to lay my project for the financing of a small company of strolling players before the coast Gonatha on the 18th, and on the 19th he told me the matter had been carefully considered. But if the Coisnotha would only give me an opportunity of laying my project before them, you see, it is impossible for you to tell them all that is in my mind. The secretary said he thought he had listened very carefully to me and had repeated all I had said. You will excuse me if I say that I could please my own case better than you. Among other things, I forgot to tell you that the travelling company might uh, prove a paying concern. If it were to pay £10 a week after expenses, of course, if it did that, but besides, the money there are other difficulties, he said. There are women's parts in the plays you propose to have acted. The ladies whose play these parts could hardly travel about unprotected. Father Riley, who is on the coast Grotha. He is everywhere. He's a great man for the Irish, and he brought out this point very clearly, and everybody agreed with him. Of course, if Ireland is to be governed by parish priests, and I fumed about the office... Talking of the Italian Renaissance, there is nothing to hinder you and Mr. Martin from starting a company. Fiddlesticks. The Moore and Martin company would have no success whatsoever. If it is to be done at all, I will have to be called the Gaelic League Touring Company. Besides, Mr. Martin wouldn't go into any project that the priests opposed on the ground of faith and morals. So I suppose the thing is at an end. I wouldn't advise you to go on with it, for I've always noticed that nothing succeeded in Ireland unless the priests take it up. So, the Irish language is going to be sacrificed for the sake of a little female virtue. But girls are seducing young men, and old men too, for that matter, all over the world, and every hour of the night and day, that such a profligacy is not desirable in England. I readily understand, but in Ireland, you know what I mean. I'm afraid I don't. You surprised me, and taking a sovereign out of my pocket, I held it up to his gaze. The depreciation of the gold species. Now you understand? I'm afraid I don't. If a man employs 50 girls in a factory, he wishes them to practice virtue, for if they don't, they will not be able to give him that amount of work which will enable him to pay dividends. But in Ireland there are no factories, and consequently female virtue is not a natural necessity, as in England. I'm afraid you'll never get Father Riley to see it from your point of view. Probably not. Irish Catholics have taken their morality from England, English Puritans. I should have said economists. Good morning. But halfway down the stairs, a new idea occurred to me, and the temptation was very great to return and tell the secretary that the safety bicycle has brought the new morality into the world, even into Ireland. 
For by freeing girls from the control of their mothers, it has given them the right to earn their own living, and the right of women to earn their living on their feet has, and I pause to consider the question, has brought to a close the oldest of all trades. The light of love is becoming as rare as the chuff. And on the dusty stairs of the Gaelic League, I remembered how numerous they used to be on Kingston Pier on Sundays, all of them beautifully dressed in sea-green dresses and seal-skin jackets. All the same, there is no reason why the moralist should rejoice. Their places are being taken by bands of enthusiastic amateurs. Thousands of years ago in India, I said, the Buddhist spoke of the wheel of life and was in the wheel of change. And thinking how quickly this wheel revolves in the middle of us, I imagined myself in a pulpit preaching a great sermon on morality. Its cause and cure, and the wonderful things I could say on this subject, ran on in my head until I caught sight of three large, healthy-looking priests standing on the curb. Dressed in admirable broadcloth and wearing finely stitched American boots, their fat and freckled hands playing with their watch chains, at that moment, dear Edward joined them, and from the complacency that has his arrival brought into the clerical faces, it seemed certain that he was asking how the country was looking, meaning thereby, how is the Irish language going along? And they are answering his question sympathetically, I said, but on approaching the group, the words Her Excellency caught my ear, and I guessed that they were talking of the caravan which Lady Aberdeen had sent around the country. A caravan of plastic protects and warnings against the danger of spitting and of sleeping with closed windows. But it will not incur to them that insufficient food is the cause of much consumption, I said, thinking of the van man who goes out at six o'clock in the morning and returns home at midday wet to the skin. And after a dinner of potatoes and dripping, luckily, if he gets a bit of American bacon, goes out again and comes back about eight or nine to a cup of tea, lucky if he gets that before lying down in his wet shirt. Father O'Reilly had set me against the clerics. And it was in a spirit of rebuke that I listened to the priests, proposing that sermons denouncing spitting should be delivered in every parish from the altar. Edward introduced me to the Holy Ones, and after listening to them for a while, the temptation stole over me to tell them that I had written to Her Excellency last night, asking her to use her very great influence to make known the cure that had been discovered. And what cure is that? Edward asked innocently. Holy orders. Now listen, I have come up upon a great truth, that for the last hundred years no archbishop has died from consumption. Nor a bishop, nor a parish priest, only two or three outlying curates. Therefore, my letter to Her Excellency is a serious advocacy that all Ireland should take her orders. Those who want to lead celibate lives, remaining or becoming Catholics, those who wish to enter the marriage state, remaining or discovering themselves Protestants. In this way, and only in this way, will Her Excellency be able to kill a fatal disease and rid Ireland of religious differences. What do you think of the new cure, gentlemen? But Edward, wait a moment. As the priest did not seem ready with an answer, I bade them goodbye abruptly and hurried hurried after Edward. Why all this haste? I asked, overtaking him. I don't like that kind of talk. It's most offensive to me. And I, after introducing you... But, my dear Edward, how can it be offensive to propose that all Ireland shall take orders? Didn't Father Sheehan say in his last masterpiece that he looked forward to the day when Ireland should be one vast monastery. 
When that day comes, they'll make short work of fellows like you. Ship you all off, but I daren't linger at the corner talking. I'll catch another cold, but Edward, I've just come from Gaelic League and have to speak to you on a matter of importance. Well then, come along. We might follow the quays to Ringsend. That way means loitering, looking at ships and Edward, who had been feeling a little bit lively, livery lately, sorry, proposed that we should walk to Balls Bridge and follow the Dodder on the Donnybrook. Returning home by Leeson Street, we crossed Carlisle Bridge at a rate of four miles an hour. In the end of Westmoreland Street, Edward said, This way, and we turned into Brunswick Street. At Westland Row, he said, We'll turn up here and avoid the back streets, and away we went. Through Merrion Square and Lower Mount Street, Edward thinking all the time of his liver. Never for a moment of the business that I wished to speak to him about. My irritation increased against him at every lamp post in Lower Mount Street, but I restrained myself while we reached Ballsbridge. Was a man ever absorbed in himself as you are, I wonder? How is that, he asked, becoming interested at once. You've forgotten that I told you I had an important matter to speak to you about. No, I haven't, but I'm waiting for you to speak about it. And all this while, come now, no fussing, what have you got to say? Feeling the uselessness of being angry with him, I told him of my interview with the secretary. Apparently, the touring company is all off, and though we are, we were in favour of it a fortnight ago, you weren't enthusiastic when it came up for discussion. You were asleep. Who told you I was asleep? You'd fall asleep too if you were kept out of your bed till three o'clock in the morning, listening to them saying the same things over and over again. Well, when you woke up, you voted against me with Father Riley. Deny it if you can. It wasn't till Father Riley brought out the point, but you were asleep. No, I wasn't asleep. I followed the argument very closely, and I agree with Father Riley that it would be a very serious thing indeed to persuade four or five girls to leave their mothers and cast them into the promiscuous current of theatrical life without proper chaperones. A breath of theology blows you hither and thither. You'd have yielded to the persuasion of the learned friar to throw out the Countess Kathleen if you hadn't found a backing in Father Barry and Father Tom Finlay. Your own play would have had to go with it. Even the sacrifice would not have stopped you. And because he, we couldn't produce your play, The Tale of a Town, I don't know that anybody else would have acted as I did, when you sided with Yeats against me, I gave you my play to adapt, to cut up, to turn inside out, for I had always preached unity, and was determined that nobody should say I didn't practice what I preached. When my turn came, we produced Maeve instead of The Tale of a Town. You didn't expect that we were going to produce two plays by you in one year, did you? We preferred Meave. All the same, you threw us over. Your agreement with Yeats was to provide money for three years, and when you backed out, we had to go to Benson. He agreed to produce Diomede and Grenier, else the Irish Literary Theatre would not have completed its three years. There was a great deal in Diomede and Grenier which I didn't approve of, many coarse expressions and a tendency to place pagan Ireland above Christian Ireland, and I'm not taken in, 
I'm not taken in by you and Yeats and the old proselytia in the background. The long loose mouth tightened and a look of resolution came into the eyes. The woolen gloves grasped the umbrella. And the step grew quicker. I lagged a little behind to obtain a better view of the great boots. Years ago in London I had asked him to come and see the Robinsons with me. Not noticing the size of his boots until we... He was seated in their drawing room. On the hearth rug at Earl's Terrace, they seemed to take up so much room that I felt obliged to tell Edward that we he would do well to get himself a pair of patent leathers, which, I am bound to say, he ordered at once, and in German Street, presenting on his next visit a more spruce appearance, but he had always felt out of his element in drawing rooms, and had long ago returned to the original boots and to the black overcoat in which he wraps himself in winter as in a blanket. <clears throat> uh, sorry. Under the brim of the bowler hat, I could just catch sight of the line of his unequaline nose, a drop hung at the end of it. It fell as we entered Leeson Street at the moment when he was telling me of the agreement he would draw up if he succeeded in persuading the Archbishop to accept his £10,000 for the support of the pro-polyphonic choir. Edward is shrewd enough in business, and I admired the scrupulosity of the wording of the bond which would prevent the clerics from ever returning to Gonald's Ava Maria. My money we will tie up in such a way that there will be no setting aside of Palestrina for Verdi's requiem when I am out of the way. It amused me to think of the embarrassment of the Archbishop, fairly caught between the devil and the deep sea, reduced to the necessity of refusing £10,000 or entering into the strictest covenant for the performance of 16th century polyphonic music forever and ever. On one point, however, Edward was inclined to yield. If some great composer of religious music should arise, the fact that he was born out of due time should not exclude his works from performance at the Dublin Cathedral, but as that possibility is very remote, it is not probable that my choir will ever stray beyond Palestrina, Vittoria, Orlando di Lasso and Clemens non papa. His appearance seemed so strangely at variance with his tastes that I could not help smiling. The old grey trousers challenged the eye at that moment and I thought of the thin, decadent youth very fastidious in his dress, writing Latin, Greek or French poems that one would have naturally imagined as a revivalist of old polyphonic music. An old castle would be the inevitable dwelling of his youth. He would have purchased one of, for the purpose, but Edward had inherited the castle. He is, as his mother used to say, the last male of his race, a very old race, the Martins are, having been in Ireland since the earliest times. It is said that they came over with William the Conqueror from France, so Edward is a de descendant of ancient knights on one side. The very lineage that the Paris fell side of Edward's nature would choose, but the Paris fell side is remote and intermittent. It does not form part of his actual life, and he is prouder of the Smiths and the Martins attributing any talent that he may have to his grandfather John Smith of Masonbrook, a pure peasant, a man of great original genius, who without education or assistance from anyone succeeded in piling up a great fortune in the country of Galway. He had invested money in land when estates 
were being sold in the encumbered estate's court, and so successful were his speculations that he was able to marry his daughter to old John Martin of Tillyra, to whom she brought a fortune of £10,000 she had inherited from her father some good looks, a distinguished appearance to many refined tastes, and the reader has not forgotten altogether her grief at Edward's celibacy, which would deprive the Gothic house he built the pleasure her of, a, of an heir. My recollections of... Sorry, to please her of an heir, not to pleasure her of an heir. <clears throat> I think it's an important distinction. <laughs> My recollections of mother and son go back to the very beginning of my life, to the time when Edward returned from Oxford writing poems that I admired for their merit and probably a little for the sake of my friend, in whom I discerned an original nature. I'm too different from other people, he used to say, even to be a success, and the poems were ultimately burnt, for they seemed to him to be on reflection in disagreement with the teachings of his church. So he was, in the beginning... What he is in the end, I said, and a great psychologist might have predicted his solitary life in two musty rooms above a tobacconist's shop, and his last habits, such as pouring his tea into a saucer, balancing the saucer on three fingers like an old woman in a country. Edward is all right if he gets his mass in the morning and his pipe in the evening, a great bulk of peasantry with a delicious strain of palestrina running through it. I must be getting my dinner, he said. But won't you come home and dine with me? There are many other points. No, he said. I don't care to dine with you. You're never, you're never agreeable at table. You find fault with the cooking. If you come back, I swear to you that whatever the cook may send me up, the last time I dined at your house, you made remarks about my appetite. If I did, it was because I feared a papalexy. Several parish priests have died lately. His great back disappeared in the direction of a tavern. Well, Team Edward, I guess I would say, on the conclusion of that chapter. Um, now, I'm feeling ambitious. Let me have a little look here. Yep, feeling ambitious. It's a double chapter day. I might, at some point, pause and come back, but... Because I have started early again, it's still only uh, midday here. Um, <clears throat> so, double chapter day. Chapter 8 goes like this. As it seemed easier to tell Willie Fay the bad news than to write a letter, I left a message with one of his friends asking him to call at my house. Any evening except Saturday would suit me. On Saturday evenings I received my friends and it would be difficult to discuss the matter freely before them. So Willie Fay came to see me on Thursday night and perching himself on the highest chair in my room, in spite of my protests, he fidgeted in like a man in a hurry, anxious to get through an interview which had no longer any interest for him. Answering me with a yes and a no, receiving the suggestion very coldly that in a few months new members would be elected to the Coast Gnatha. Men, I said, who will take a different view from Father Riley, I suppose we wouldn't care to wait. They'll go their way and I'll go mine, he answered, and with such a grand air of indifference that I began to suspect he had already heard of my failure to persuade the Gaelic League to accept him as the new manager of a touring company, and had gotten something else in view. The acoustics of Dublin are very perfect. But when I questioned him, 
Regarding his plans, he gave a vague answer and took his leave as soon as he decently could. A secret there certainly was, and I thought it over, till A.E. mentioned on Saturday night that the Fays had come to ask him to allow them to perform his Deidre. Your Deidre. And forthwith he confided to me that one morning about six weeks before, as he rose from his bed, he had seen her in the woods, where she lived with Levachon. I saw the lilacs blooming in the corner of the yard, and herself running through the woods towards the dun. She came, crying to her dear foster mother. Half for protection, half for glee, she had seen a young man for the first time, Nassay, who in pursuit of a deer had passed through the glen unperceived, though it was strictly guarded by the king's spearmen. And what happens then, I asked, interested in the setting forth of the story. A love story with Nicey, who begs Deidre to fly with him to Scotland, for only by putting a sea between them can they escape the wrath of Concubar. And it was while returning home over Portobello Bridge that he saw Nasai and his Scottish dun mending a spear, a memory of the chivalry of the Altonians having kindled in him during the night. So far I have written, he said, and as soon as... I get another free evening, I shall finish the act for the phase. But he had to wait a long while for his next inspiration, and in great patience the actor and actresses continued to chant their parts through the winter nights until the third act was brought to them. It was discovered that A.E.'s play was too short for an evening's entertainment, and Yeats was asked for his Kathleen Hulahan. He had met her last summer in one of the wood, seven woods of Cool in which a, nature, a future historian will decide, for me it is to tell merely that the two plays were performed on April 15th in St. Teresa's Hall, Clarendon Street, before an enthusiastic and demonstrative crowd of men and women. A later historian will also have, a deter- have to determine whether A.E. took the part of the god Mananan Machmlir at his performance, or whether he only appeared in the part at the preliminary performance in Kofi's drawing room. All I know, for certain, is that none will ever forget the terrible emphasis he gave to the syllables Manan Norn McClear in Kofi's drawing room. He very likely had something to do with the bringing of the Maud Gorn from France to play the part of Kathleen Nihulihan, or did she come for Yeats's sake? However, she came... And dreaming of the many rebel societies that awaited her coming, she gave point to the line since becoming famous. They have taken from me my four beautiful fields. A line which I have no hesitation in taking from Lady Gregory and attributing to Yeats. Alright. Gonna pause. Gonna come back in a little bit to finish the chapter. Be right back. I'm back. An Irish audience always likes to be reminded of the time when Ireland was a nation and the phase determined that some organisation must be started to keep the idea alive. The presidency of the National Theatre Society was offered to A.E., but he seemed to have considered his dramatic mission over and contented himself with drawing up the rules and advising the members of the elect Yeats as, to elect Yeats as their president. He may have noticed that Yeats had been seeking an outlet for Irish dramatic genius ever since the breakup of the Irish Literary Theatre, and for sure, 
The fact was not lost upon him that Yeats's ears pricked up only when the word play was mentioned, the word play was mentioned, and that his eyes were never lifted from the ground in his walks except to overlook a piece of waste ground as a possible site for a theatre. He could not but have heard Yeats mutter, mutter <clears throat> on more than one occasion. Goth had a theatre, Wagner had a theatre, and he had drawn just a conclusion that Yeats was seeking an outlet for Irish dramatic talent and will bring courage and energy to the aid of the new movement. Oh, the wise A.E. for Yeats, as soon as he was elected president, took the phase in hand, discovering almost immediately that their art was of French descent and could be traced back to the middle of the 17th century in France. Some explanation of this kind was necessary, for Dublin had to be persuaded that two little clerks had to suddenly become great artists, and to confirm Dublin in, Dublin in this belief, the newspapers were requested to state that Mr. W. B. Yeats was writing a play for Mr. William Fay on the subject of the pot of broth. While the best of us are sometimes short-sighted and superficial, and let it be freely confessed that it seems to me at the time disgraceful that the author of The Wanderings of Usheen would stoop to writing a farce, for the subject Yeats had chosen was farcical, and the word represented to me only the merely conventional drolleries that I had seen on the London stage. My excuse for my blindness is that I have spent much of my life in France among French writers, folklore was unknown in the Montmartre in my time, and no French writer that I know of except Moliere and Georges Sand has used, made use of patois in literature. We are only beginning to become alive to the beauty of living speech, when living speech is fast being driven out by journalists. But to return to Yeats, whose claim to immortality is well-founded, for he knew from the first that literature rises in the mountains like a spring and descends, enlarging into a rivulet and then into a river. All this is clear to me today, but when he spoke to me of the pot of broth, I asked him if he weren't ashamed of himself, and when he proposed that I should choose a similar subject and write a farce for Willie Fay, I rose from my chair relying on gesture to express my abhorrence of this scheme. But not liking to be left out of anything... I consented at last to write half a dozen plays to be translated into Irish. It may not be necessary to have them translated. Wouldn't it do you as well if Lady Gregory put idiom on there? We shall get the idiom, idiom much better, I answered, by having the plays translated into Irish. I will publish the Irish text, and you can do what you like with the brogue. The stupid answer of a man intellectually run down, but next day I was down at Gaelic League unfolding my project to the secretary who thought it was a very good one for the advancement of the Irish language, and as soon as the plays were written, the coast Goretha would decide. My good man, do you think that I came over from England to submit plays to the coast Gunatha? And we two stood looking at each other until the futility of my question began to dawn on me. And then to pass the matter over, I asked him if he knew of any Irish writers who could clothe the skeletons which I would supply with suitable dialogue. He said that Take O'Donoghue was very busy at present, but fees was being held in Galway, and he suggested that I should go down and seek what I wanted among the prize winners. Mr. Edward Martin is one of the judges of traditional singing. You'll see him. Mr. Yeats and Lady Gregory are certain to be there, so I am going to interview the ancient Irish language in the historic town of Galway, I said to myself as the train rattled westward and the pretty weather in which Ireland has attired itself is in keeping with the occasion. 
And on alighting from the train, my thoughts ran on to the same tune, and that old grey city lay in the sun, seemingly stirred in her sleep by the sound of her language, the remnant having come from the islands beyond, islands beyond the bay. The remnant, surely, I repeated as I passed into a long, low room, pleasantly lighted by four square shining windows. A peasant sang uncouth rhythms, but Edward, the old melomaniac, sat with his hands to his ear. How are you, Edward? A traditional singer, he answered, come from the middle island, listen to him. And to please Edward, I listened to the singer, but could catch only a vague drift of sound, rising and falling, unmeasured as the wind, sowing among the trees, or the lament of the waves on the shore, something that might go all go on all day long, and the old fellow thatching his cabin all the while. The singer was followed by a piper, and the music that Michael Fluttery, a blind man from Connemara, drew from his pipes was hardly more articulate, and I began to think that the doleful pipes now, and again breaking into a jig tune, represented the soul of the Irish people better than any words could, music being more fundamental. A long wail from the pipes startled me, and I was awake again in the long row room of May sunlight streaming through the square windows. Edward's hand was still at his ear, just as if he was afraid of missing a note, and at a little distance away, Yeats and Lady Gregory sat, colloguing together, their faces telling me nothing. Dancers rushed in, hopped up and down, round about and back again, the women's petticoats whirling above the grey worsted legs, the tails of the men's frieze coats flying behind them, their hobnails hammering a great dust out of the floor. And as soon as the jig was over, the storyteller came in and, taking a chair, he warmed his hands over an imaginary peat fire and began to tell of a man lost in a field. He would t- to turn his coat inside out to rid himself of the fairy spell, and glancing around the audience I could see the eyes of the Irish speakers kindling. It was easy to pick them out, and wandering, the wandering Celtic eye, pale as their own hills, creatures of marsh and jungle, they seemed to me, sad as the primitive nature in which they lived. I had known them from childhood, but was always afraid of them, and used to run into the woods when I saw the women coming with the men's dinners from Derenini. The name is like them. And the marsh behind the village and the dim line of the party mountains, partry mountains were always alien from me. <clears throat> Edward, let's get away. We're losing all sunlight. He could not leave the feast just then, but if I would wait till the storyteller had finished, he might be able to get away for an hour. We are expecting a piper from Iran, the great piper of the Middle Island, and a great number of storytellers, Yeats added. You see, I'm the president of the Piper's Club, Edward broke in. They should be here by now, only there is no wind in the bay, Yeats muttered. I begged of him to come away, but he did not know if he could leave Lady Gregory. He leaned over her, and at the end of some affable murmuring, she seemed satisfied to let him go, accepting his promise to come back to fetch her in time for lunch. And we three went out together for a walk through the town. How happy the sunlight makes me. Don't you feel a little tipsy, Edward? How could you have wanted to sit listening any longer to that eternal rigmarole without beginning or end? You mean the traditional singer? He wasn't very good. And only got poor marks, Edward said. And he asked me what I thought of the piper. He recalled many memories and a landscape. But if you like folk music, how is it that you don't like folk tales? I do like folk tales in the Irish language or in the English. Folk is our refuge from vulgarity, Yeats answered, and we strolled aimlessly through the sunlight. Where would you like to go? Edward asked me abruptly. To see the salmon. 
All my life I've heard of the salmon lying in the river, four and five deep like sardines in a box. Well, you'll see them today, Yeats answered. There were other idlers beside ourselves enjoying the fair weather and their arms resting on the stone bridge. They looked into the ripple, the brown rippling water, remarking from time to time that the river was very low, no one had ever seen it lower, and that the fish would have to wait a long time before there was enough water for them to go up the weir. But my eyes could not distinguish a fish till Yeats told me to look straight down through the brown water and I saw one, and immediately afterwards a second, third and fourth, and then the great shoal, hundreds, thousands of salmon, each fish keeping its place in the current, a slight movement of the tail being sufficient, and if they should get tired of waiting to return and return to the sea, Yeats is a bit of a naturalist and in an indolent mood, it was pleasant to listen to him telling of the habits of the salmon which only feeds in the sea. If the fishermen were to get a rise, it would be because the fish were tired of waiting and snapped at anything to relieve the tedium of daily life. A lovely day it was, the town lying under a white canopy of cloud, not a wind in all the air, but a line of houses sheer and dim along the river mingling in the grey shadows, and on the other bank there were waste places difficult to account for, ruins showing dimly through the soft diffused light like old castles, but Yeats said they were the ruins of ancient mills, for Galloway had once been a prosperous town. Maybe, my spirit answered, but less beautiful than she is today, and after this remark, Yeats was forgotten in the fisherman who threw his fly in vain, for the fish were too absorbed in their natural instinct to think of another, but the coming flood which would carry them up the river. I saw him change his fly many times, and at last, with some strange medley of red and blue and purple, he roused a fish out of its lethargy. It snapped, the hook caught in its gills, and a battle began which lasted up and down the stream till at last a wearied fish was drawn up to the bank for the gilly to gaff. The fisherman prepared to throw his fly again across the river. Another silly fish would be tempted to snap at the gaudy thing dragged across its very nose sooner or later, but we had seen enough of fishing for one day, and Edward led us through a dusty, dilapidated square. We stopped by the broken railings of the garden, for in the middle of the grass plot somebody had set up an ancient gateway, all that remained of some great house, and when we had admired it, we followed him through some crumbling streets to the townhouse of the Martins, for in the 18th century the western gentry did not go to Dublin for the season. Dublin was two long days' journey away, going to Dublin meant spending a night on the road. And so, every important county family had its own house in Galloway. My grandfather's must have danced in Galway, there being no important town in Mayor and in fine houses, if one may judge from the remains of Edwards. We viewed it from the courtyard, and he told us it had been out in the tenements, and we was nearly a ruin when it came into his hands. The roof was failing. The police had ordered him to have it taken down, for it was public danger, and we listened to him, and was we considered the archway under which the four-horsed coach used to pass into the courtyard, whilst he pointed out some marble chimney-pieces high up on the naked walls, saying he had better have them taken away. I hoped he would leave them for a scattered vision of ladies in high-peaked belduses, and gentlemen with swords had just appeared to me, dancing in mid-air, appeared to me, not him. Leave them in these steps where the lackeys have set down sedan chairs, embroidered shoes have run up these steps, flowered trains following the dance minuet and gavote or waltzes. And arguing whether the waltz had penetrated the Galloway in the 18th century, we followed it to the cathedral, 
Edward likes archers, even when the service held beneath him is Anglican, and he made himself agreeable, telling us that the cathedral was built late in the 15th century and we wandered down the aisles, deploring the vulgarity of the modern world. It would be impossible, he said, to build as beautiful a cathedral today, and he called on us to remember that there could not have been much culture in Galloway in the 15th century, yet Galloway could build a cathedral. Galloway was then without knowledge, I answered. We corrupt in knowledge and purify ourselves in ignorance. Who said that? Yeats asked sharply. Balzac. But I cannot answer for the exact words. True, how true, Edward repeated, and leading us down the lane where he pointed out some stone carvings which seemed to him conclusive of the 15th, but which might be 14th century sculpture, Ireland being always a century behind England, and England being always a century behind France, all the same. He believed that the gateway was late 15th century, and at that time Galloway was trading with Spain, and the gateway bore traces of Spanish influence. He spoke of the great galleons that once came floating on the bay, their sails filled with the sunset, and called our attention to the wide-sweeping outlines of the headland stretching far away into the Atlantic. Not only in certain buildings, but in the flesh and blood of traces of the Spaniard to be found in Galway, I said, and pointing to a group of yellow-skinned boys basking among the brown nets, drying them along the Great Wharf. Edward told me that these were Claddagh boys, and that the Claddagh were all Irish speakers, and we stopped in to question them as to the language they were in the habit of using, only to learn with sorrow that English and Irish were all the same to them. That is how the language dies, Edward said. The parents speak it, the children understand it, but don't speak it, and the grandchildren neither speak nor understand it. I like the English language, and I like the Irish, but I hate the mixture. Yeats sighed, and the boys told us that the hooker from Iran was lying out there in the west, becalmed, and we need not expect her before evening unless the men put out the oars, and she was too heavy for rowing. On a warm day like this, not unlikely, I answered, and the indolent boys laughed, and we continued our walk down the wharf, thinking of the great labour spent upon it, the bringing of all these stones, and the building of them so firmly, and for so such a long way into the sea could only have been done in famine times. A long wharf, so long that we had not walked half its length when Yeats and Edward began to speak of returning to the fees, and leaving them undecided, staring into the mist, hoping to catch sight of every moment of the black hull of the hooker. I strayed on ahead, looking round, wondering, tempted to explore the mystery of the wharf's end, yet what mystery could be there? Only a lot of tumbled stones, but the wonder of the world has hardly decreased for me since the days when I longed to explore the wilderness of rocks at the end of Kingston Pier, the great clefts frightening me, sending me back ashamed of my cowardice to where my uncles and aunts and cousins were seated. Listening to the band in the 60s, fashionable Dublin used to assemble on the pier on Sunday afternoons. One day I was bolder and descended into the wilderness, returning after a long absence, very excited and telling that I had met the king of the fairies fishing at the mouth of the cave. The story that I had brought back was that he had caught three fish when I had met him and gave me one. I was silent when he asked why I had forgotten to bring it back with me, my interest in the adventure being centred in the fact that in answer to my question how far fairyland was from Kingston, he had told me that a great wave rises out of the sea every month and that I must go away upon it and then wait for another great wave which would take me another piece of the way. I must wait for a third wave and it would be the ninth that would throw me right up to under fairyland. But the story interested nobody but me. My uncles and aunts looked at me evidently considering if I weren't a little daft and one of the crudest of the Blakes, a girl with a wide, ugly mouth and a loud voice laughed harshly, saying that I could not be taken anywhere, even the Kingston Pier, without something wonderful happening to me. These Blakes were my first critics, and their gibes filled me with shame. 
And I remember coming to a resolve that night to avoid all the places where one would be likely to meet a fairy fisherman, and if I did come across another by ill chance to run away from him, my fingers in my ears, but notwithstanding the early vow and many subsequent vows I have failed to see, and here is the Blakes do, and I go on meeting adventures everywhere, even on the wharf at Galway, which should have been safe from them. By Edward, one is always safe from adventures, and it would have been well for me not to have stirred from his side. I only strayed fifty yards, but that short distance was enough, for while looking down into the summer sea, thinking how it moved up against the land's side like a soft feline animal, the voices of some women engaged my attention, and turning I saw the three girls had come down to a pool sequestered out of observation in a hollow of the headland. Sitting on the bank, they drew off their shoes and stockings and advanced into the water, kilting their petticoats above their knees as it deepened. On seeing me, they laughed invitingly, and as if desiring my appreciation, one girl walked across the pool, lifting her red petticoat to her waist and forgetting to drop it when the water shallowed. She showed me thighs whiter and rounder than any I have ever seen. Their country coarseness heightened it with the temptation. She continued to come towards me. A few steps would have taken me behind the hillock. They might have bathed naked before me, and it would have been the boldest I should have chosen if fortune had favoured me, but Yeats and Edwards began calling, and dropping her petticoat, she waded from me. What are you doing down there, George? Hurry up. Here's the hooker being rowed into the bay, bringing the piper and the storytellers from Iran. Iran, that is. And that's the end of chapter eight. Thanks very much for listening. Two chapters today. Good job. I'll see you tomorrow.